0: Welcome to Mapping Healthy Minds, a podcast for people who want a better sense of mental health and how to achieve it. I'm your host and licensed marriage and family therapist, Justin Lewis. I'm about to uh, let you hear part two of my episode with Brian Clardy, a history professor uh, at Murray State University. Uh, More of his info is back in in episode one so if you want more of that cb you can find it there our uh, race series uh, is now technically three episodes old and it has a couple of sponsors that i want to be sure and tell you about first is paducah bank paducah bank is an award-winning locally owned bank with branches in six locations in paducah and also in louisville paducah bank received a five-star rating from buyer financial the nation's premier bank rating firm in june paducah bank was notified that it had earned the highest rating that buyer financial awards the bank has earned this five-star rating for 44 consecutive quarters and is one of America's strongest banks. If you would like to be wowed from Paducah's premier banking institution, give them a call at 270-575-5700. This episode is also sponsored by Ideal Fit don't let aches and pains keep you from living your best life call ideal fit physical therapy for a free phone consultation ideal fit offers one-on-one one one hour long physical therapy sessions that include therapeutic exercise manual techniques and functional dry needling call 270-551-5248 and ask for rachel to learn more so now, without any further ado, here is part two of my episode with Brian Clardy. I want to go to jazz host, sure, Brian, so you can get your mind in that place. <laughs> sure. um, so I've heard this idea about, um, it's kind of like in popular culture, we can accept black people as entertainers. But then a harder time accepting him as people. an NBA basketball player uh, had an interview where he talked about this. He was like, "Yeah, we were able to see like the, um, you know, the the musicians, the actors, the ball players, uh, but mm-hmm. then seeing them as real people is more of a challenge." But, you know, jazz is mostly going to be an African American type of music, I think, for sure. On the whole, I took jazz appreciation at Murray State, although. Uh, You know, most of what I recall was how do I uh, find a way to get this girl's phone number that's sitting in front of me? There you go. (laughs) (laughs) If I'm going to be real with you.
1: That would do it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But uh, anyways, so do you have an opinion on that? I do. I do,
1: actually. Um, You take, for example, Louis Armstrong, Billie Holiday. Let's just look at those two particular ones. Louis Armstrong had a huge, huge following uh, among white folks who listened to jazz. Uh Uh, Louis Armstrong looked like he was non-threatening. You know, he smiled, he told jokes from the stage and so forth, had this very jovial type personality. And he was an excellent musician and singer. And he seemed like a throwback to a previous generation of being an accommodationist black and a lot of young black folks just didn't listen to Louis Armstrong. They thought that he was an Uncle Tom. Mm. Thought being the operative word. (laughs) Right. When uh, the Little Rock situation went down in the 1950s, uh, Louis Armstrong was extremely critical of Orville Faubus. He was critical of Faubus, he was critical of Eisenhower for not really taking a strong action at that point as he should have. And um, Armstrong called uh, Faubus an ignorant uh, plowboy. Uh, he said that, that the government could go to hell the way they're treating my people in the South and so forth. And Louis Armstrong lost a lot, a, a lot of fans over that very thing. Mm-hmm. He was okay as long as he was playing the trumpet and telling jokes from the stage and smiling. Mm-hmm. But when he became political, then Louis Armstrong becomes a problem. Mm-hmm. If you take Billie Holiday, Billie Holiday, great singer, great lounge singer, great from the concert stage. She can sing, God bless the child, that's fine. Tain't nobody's business if I do. She has this great, very attractive voice, this attractive persona on the stage. But once she makes a song about lynching, then Billie Holiday becomes a problem.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Strange Fruit was not played on a lot of radio stations. It's a very disturbing song, um, but it, she's in protest mode. Mm-hmm. And she, it, it, Strange Fruit becomes her biggest selling record. And she sings it at the end of every con- concert. She sings at the end of every single concert and every performance, which is a dramatization about the horrors of of lynching.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: As I said, at this point, Billie Holiday becomes a problem. Now, some of the problems that Billie Holiday dealt with, some of them were manufactured by herself. That's true. She had a very serious drug problem, very mm-hmm. serious drug problem, but that was used against her. And, and so, in the last days of Billie Holiday's life, um. She's virtually penniless. She has all types of complications from being on drugs, being on alcohol. Her liver is shot. Her health is shot. She's 95 pounds, but she's in her hospital bed under police supervision and handcuffed to the bed <laughs> in the last few days of her life. Uh, Billie Holiday now has to be made an example of. Because she was one of those folks that challenged the system, and you don't challenge the system in those days without repercussions. And so if you just take those particular artists, just those two, and just look at how they're viewed in the public until they become political, I think what you just mentioned with regard to what the NBA player said, I think that's very stark and very accurate.
0: Mm-hmm. And that hasn't changed. It's, it's, it's no, it hasn't. Yeah, it hasn't. Kind of it saying. hasn't.
1: Yeah. And then, if you look at if you look at different other groups, like and I did a presentation on this earlier this year. If you look at groups like the Art Ensemble of Chicago and the whole AACM movement and so forth, these musicians, these nouveau musicians who want to reclaim jazz. And in fact, uh, the uh, Art Ensemble of Chicago, they don't even call their music jazz, they call it great black music. And they come out in African attire and they're playing all these African type rhythms. Do you honestly think they're gonna pack concert halls? They're not, because now they've become political. They've become a problem. And so and we, 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 we lionized them today, but in the early and mid-1970s, I guarantee you, if you had bought the AACM to a local auditorium here in town, I guarantee you, you would not have filled up a third of that space because the word would have been out, here come these black troublemakers in to play this radical music and we don't want to hear it.
0: So one other thing that I meant to bring up about this, uh, this book that I'm reading uh, is that he talks about this idea. And I don't know if it's a uh, an idea that crosses into other literature, or if this is something that he is using. But uh, throughout the book, he will talk about that African-Americans are put in a position where they have to be twice as good to be equal.
1: Yes. We call it the black tax.
0: Okay. To me, that is uh, a way to frame uh, privilege or white privilege. Like I don't have to be twice as good to be equal. People are always just going to give me the benefit of the doubt. Yes.
1: Um, yes. So I don't have yeah. to
0: pay that tax to use that term.
1: Yeah. yeah. And, and see, this is the one thing when I first went off to college, this is 1985, I had several members of my family, several relatives in my family to tell me that exact thing. My mother told me, my father told me, they're both college graduates. And they said, you have got to work twice as hard in your particular field to even get a third of the recognition. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, that kind of sucks, that's unfair. But when I got away to college and grad school and in the world of work, I found that to be true. Just to even get grudging recognition, Mm -hmm. you have to go over and above, Mm -hmm. uh, whatever the expectations are. And you may not necessarily get the recognition for it, but one thing about it is you'll keep working and you won't lose your job. And, uh, but, but no, that is very tiresome and it is very stressful. Um, but it has become an accepted fact of being African-American and these get to be United States. It's sort of par for the course now that mm-hmm. you have to go over and above just to even get tacit or small recognition. Mm-hmm. So it, 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 it is what it is. And I tell young people that all the time, you've, you've got to show up on time. You've got to be prepared. Uh, You've got to prepare for every exigency. You have to have a plan B. You cannot bring an aggressive attitude to what you do. You may feel the resentment, but please do not say it. Do not give it voice. And Mm -hmm. if you have to, you've got to follow the the, uh, administrative procedures. If you need to lodge a complaint, you have to go by the book because uh, if you display an attitude, if you raise your voice, uh, that's what is expected of you. If you launch into a cussing tirade, that's what they expect you to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you're going to be a part of the process, you have to learn how the game is played.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And you and, and, and you're constantly, you're constantly on your toes. You're constantly worried about what is being said about you, what is being planned against you, what is being plotted against you. What if you fail in this particular instance? What is gonna be the public perception of you? So yeah, it is very stressful. It is very tiresome. And um, if you ask any African-American professionals in law, in business, in medicine, in education, in nursing, um, yeah, you're, you're gonna you're, you're hear those horror stories. And, um, but see, here's the, here's the thing, and I'm glad that you mentioned this about white privilege. The other side is, this is where, in, in the 90s, this was a huge thing. Mm-hmm. There was always this view, well, you only got to this particular stage in life because of affirmative action.
0: I was going to bring that up just, just in a second. I'm glad you went ahead. Yeah, that yeah. you
1: only got to this stage because you fit some sort of quota system. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. Affirmative action may let you in the door, but it ain't going to keep you there. hmm it may give you the opportunity, but you're still going to have to get in there and scrap and give your 1,000% in order to get grudging recognition or to hang on to what you've got. Mm-hmm. So no, that argument does not fly, and it never has for me. Okay.
0: Yeah, I was just going to present that argument, um, not as a personal argument, but just as saying, here's a stance that exists mm-hmm. to, let oh, you, yeah. to let you answer that. I heard that. it all the time. Yeah, I still hear it. Yeah. And so that would be your answer to someone who said something like, well, I'm not so sure about this white privilege thing because in my field, if you're black, then you're going to have more opportunity to get hired quicker.
1: You might, you might, it depends upon the climate and the culture of the institution or, uh, or the profession. It depends.
0: Sure. And in some people's professions, they could say that directly. And, um, but that's not taking into – so that there's, that's not a reason to say, well, white privilege doesn't exist, is what I'm saying right now. Just because of uh, affirmative action is not a mm-hmm. thing that you yeah. can say, yeah.
1: Yes, um, I understand your point, yes. Yeah.
0: And again, I'm just making a stance that exists. I'm not saying that's my stance. I understand.
1: I remember, I remember Prop, Prop 209 in California and that whole debate of what was going on with Proposition 209 and trying to eliminate affirmative action in California, which interestingly enough, that particular movement was led by a black man, or Connerly. <laughs> Go figure. Yeah.
0: So is, it there, is there another way besides kind of what we talked about with um, having to be twice as good that you would define white privilege? When I talk about it, I always say, you know, it's it's more of I always get the benefit of the doubt right I, if I walk into a place people are expecting the best of me if I'm wearing if I'm wearing a button-up shirt no one's going to be like I wonder what just I wonder what this white guy over here is going to do in our store or oh, anything yeah. along those. no one's going to be thinking those things and I even had a, a little conversation with a guy we were both talking about how it does exist um, yeah. and we were like you know White guy that looks like us with a blazer on, if he looks like he knows where he's going, he can walk anywhere he wants, um, just yeah. as a tongue-in-cheek. But the point is made that, you know, we're just always given the benefit of the doubt and we don't have that extra weight. And that's part of how I describe white privilege yeah. where I see it. Is that, is that ac- it, accurate It, it is. It is.
1: I've been followed in stores and I've had on a coat and tie yeah. on payday. And the assumption is I'm going to steal something. Right. I don't do I look like I need to steal something? And that's, that's the approach I always take and the track I always take. You know, I, I worked in retail at one point. I worked in retail at one point after I finished my doctorate um, summer. It was the summertime. I worked in, mm-hmm. in a record store, ironically. Um, and one of the things that I noticed, we, we went through a type of training called loss prevention and ways in which you could monitor different customers and see whether or not they're going to steal something and if they're acting suspiciously or not. So I know how the loss prevention thing goes. And what I really found very interesting where I worked, uh, these these stores, most of them have gone out of business over the last few years. I noticed that when we would get new albums in, that we would, we were told, I kid you not, those little security strips, mm-hmm. we were told to put like two of them on where rap music and R&B were being sold. Mm-hmm. Like let's say um, uh, the uh, the Violator album that came out roughly 20 some odd years ago. Mm-hmm. We were told to put one on the back of, of the album and put one up under the price tag. Because there was this expectation that People were gonna come in, especially young white men, they were gonna come in and steal those records and steal those recordings. So you didn't have to This was on... the standard operation policy of the place where I worked over 20 years ago.
0: You didn't have to do this for Bon Jovi records, just
1: No, I didn't have to do it for Andrea Bocelli, I didn't have to do it for Jessica Simpson, I didn't have to do it for Christina Aguilera, but I right. certainly had to do it for Inspector Deck and MC eight. Hmm. And I just found that very weird, but then it made sense. Mm -hmm. The caricature, the stereotype, the Mm -hmm. narrative, this has become interwoven into the culture and the society and the society's thinking.
0: What is the reason for it to be important for people to recognize that white privilege exists?
1: Because it governs our actions and how we see people, how we perceive people how we view ourselves in relation to the larger society. Um, If I see you as another human, and I do, if I see you as another human being with wants, needs, desires, aspirations, fears, hurts, and hopes, if I see you as someone who not only has the same biology, the same spirituality, the um, the same humanness, as me if i don't see you as other that is going to impact the way i treat you Mm -hmm. let's go all the way back to, to theology and talk about martin buber and his idea of an i thou relationship that's the i thou relationship where i see you as someone who is human regardless of your skin color regardless of where you come from regardless of your who you pray to who you marry whatever if i see you as a fully human being that is going to impact the way i treat you but if for some reason i see and this is the i it part of it that boober talks about if i see you as someone that's less than if i see you as someone who is inherently flawed because of the color of your skin your gender your sexuality your religion um, who you vote for, if I see you as someone as this inherently flawed and less than me, then I'm going to treat you accordingly. Mm -hmm. If, if, if that's being informed by my, uh, by my churches and my theological institutions, educational system, the media and so forth, if that's constantly reinforced and I view myself as as inherently superior to you, yes, that is definitely gonna be the way I'm gonna treat you and see you. You do not have to burn crosses in someone else's yard to be a racist. You don't have to be a card carrying member of the John Birch Society to be a racist. Racism right. is not institutional in that sense. It is a belief mm-hmm. in the superiority of one race over the other. And, okay. and, and, and you can be as nice, you can have some, well, I have black friends, or I, 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 I voted for Obama. if you inherently believe and this isn't necessarily make you an evil person, but if you inherently believe in the superiority of one race over the other, and you believe the other race has these particular flaws which are inherent to them, mm-hmm. then yeah, you need to check that privilege, because you're flat wrong. Right.
0: So, some some might say, well, you know, Brian, I, I'm colorblind. That, I, I don't see color, I just see everybody as <laughs> the same. They may even take some of what you just said and, and say, you know, I. Uh, I don't see color, I treat everybody the same.
1: I've heard that too, and here's the thing. Yes, you do see color, everybody does. Unless you have inherent color blindness, of like physical, actual material in your head, color blindness, no, you do see color. Everybody sees color, everybody sees race. The question is, in your seeing color, how do you view that color from a particular personal psychological and personal lens i i i I, I would like to think that i'm wise enough and know and not to, to know that everybody white is not racist all white cops are not trying to kill me okay but if i walk in from the assumption There's a white man, there is a white cop, they are bad people. If I work from that perspective, all dialogue shuts down. Mm -hmm. Let me give you an example. I'm just gonna throw this out here. I just Mm -hmm. wanna throw this caricature out here for you. White male, church going, politically active, from Mississippi, just lay out those perimeters. White middle-aged male, politically active church going from Mississippi, from the Mississippi Delta. What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you you think of that caricature in your head? Let me just tell you who that person was. That person was Dr. Richard Chestein. He was a professor at the University of Tennessee at Martin. He was my professor of political science. He was one of my first bosses. I worked in his campaign when he ran for governor of Tennessee. He ran as a Democrat. He he was a full supporter of the ideas of Reinhold Niebuhr. He won awards from black fraternities for being fair and equitable in the cause of civil rights. Um, Right before Dr. Chestine passed eight years ago, he gave me a huge, big stack of books, not just on civil rights, but on foreign policy, because he knew that was my forte. Mm-hmm. Dr. not if he, if he carried any type of racism in his spirit, I wouldn't have known it, because that's not how he dealt with me. Mm-hmm. But he, he had those four particular characteristics. So when, what I, if I pose that question to most folks, they will say, white male Mississippi church going politically active. They're thinking a George Wallace type. And Richard Chastain was no George Wallace. Trust me, he loathed Wallace. We have got to try, and it's a daily process, get the word all out of our vocabulary. We cannot make sweeping judgments about any particular individual or group. Because when we start making those assumptions and acting on those assumptions, what you do is that you close off dialogue. You've already put up a barrier already and nothing can get done.
0: So I have a, a friend and, and, and she says, well, if I'm gonna expect you to be my ally, I have to be your ally. And part of what she means is, you know, if I'm trying to, to come along and say the right things, you know, all that kind of stuff, then it doesn't need to be, like, squashed. But another piece of this and is what I'm hearing you say is um, nobody needs to be judged by the color of their skin.
1: The color of their skin, their religion, their sexuality, their gender, uh, even who they voted for. mm mm-hmm. uh, we, we've got to get rid of these particular barriers and how we see human beings and just see them as people.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Just see them as simple people.
0: Yeah. That being said, I have heard uh, a podcast, uh, and I was heard it several years ago actually, and I've listened to it again. Uh, they re-released it uh, and it's, um, I've talked about it in a previous episode, mm-hmm. but it is, it is a hit. The podcast is Hidden Brain. It's an NPR. Uh, podcast and the uh, episode is called the air we breathe Mm -hmm. and it's about implicit bias yeah and they talk about a test even that harvard has developed about being able to measure implicit bias Mm -hmm. by taking this thing on your computer and so i i took it and i scored that i have a bias uh against people of color uh which i didn't want to and i Right I'm not right. To, and I'm not out burning crosses and uh, no, you're not. But I, uh, I had to recognize that and this is the point of a lot of the podcast is that culture informs the person it does uh, as much as anything. And so um, I took that and I said, all right, I'm going to recognize how this plays out uh, in my initial thoughts and my stereotypes and my Um, ways that I'm going to view somebody and I'm going to recognize that I may have to take an extra step in order to do what you were just saying. And that is to see everyone as a person and not go along those lines of my initial uh, bias against one race versus another.
1: It's a daily process and you're not always going to get it right. You're not always gonna get it right. It is a learning, a daily learning process. Right. Uh, all of us have those implicit biases. It's woven into the fabric of this country's DNA. It's in our institutions, it's in our media, it's in our churches, it's in our schools. It, it's, 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 it's a part of who we are.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: it's, it's just something we, we all, as, as people, as a society, that we have to work on constantly. Uh, and not to get struck, stuck in the particular rut. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and this this I didn't know what really implicit bias was, or yeah. if it existed, or what was going on with this idea until I listened to this podcast. Right. So I share it with people right. often. Because, I
1: think I'm going to look. I'm gonna, I think I'm going to take the test too. I'm going to see what's going on too, because this I, I I all of us are working in progress. I'm a work in progress, so mm-hmm. yeah, I'm going to take the test myself.
0: Yeah, I'll uh, I'll send that.
1: I can send, send you the the link,
0: the link to that and yeah. I'll send you the link to that podcast, even if you're interested in I'll, that. Yeah,
1: I'd be glad to check it out. Be happy, that, happy to check it out.
0: I'll put that in the show notes again uh, for this episode. So excellent. excellent. I will do that. I so appreciate you joining me and being Hey It's an honor. To,
1: I'm glad that you asked me. You know where I am. You know where I can be reached. So, <laughs>
0: <laughs> I really appreciate the the history that you're able to provide today. I think that well, was thank you. really helpful. You, uh, oh, you take care.
1: You too, brother. See you next time. Right, to, to be continued. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: This has been Mapping Healthy Minds, a podcast for people who want a better sense of mental health and how to achieve it. I've been your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Justin Lewis. This series on race is produced by me and also my co-worker, Jenny Linville. If you want to learn more about Mapping Healthy Minds, you can find us on the social medias, Facebook and Instagram. We have a website, mappinghealthyminds.com, and uh, you can find out more information there. All of our episodes are up at that website. You can find other episodes at Spotify or Apple Podcasts. So once again, remember that we all have mental health and it's worth taking care of.